Friends, welcome to This Week in the Way of Jesus, a podcast hosted by the Eighth Street Church. We are a spiritual community of hope and transformation that is trying to live this way of Jesus. You'll find both weekly spiritual practices and weekly sermons on this podcast feed. For more information about the Eighth Street Church, please visit our website, www.8thstreetchurch.org, or social media pages linked in the show notes. friends, grace and peace to you in the name of our risen Lord Jesus. My name is Hope, and I get to be one of your pastors here at the 8th Street Church. I'm really grateful to be here with you today. Well, over the last few weeks, we have been in the book of Genesis. The goal of this series has been to listen to these really familiar stories and see if we can find some fresh good news for us today. So in the last three weeks, we've wondered together about the stories of creation, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and Cain and Abel. Over and over, we have seen that God's posture and stance towards humanity has been marked by patience, by abundant love and presence. This has been true regardless of how the humans in the stories have behaved. We've been surprised to see all the ways that God has been committed to this creation project all the ways that God's presence has stayed steady with God's people. The stories have been beautiful. They've been eye-opening. And lucky for us, we have one more story today. I will admit it. I think that we saved the hardest one for last. Uh, Today, we find ourselves in the book of Genesis, chapter 6 through 9. And this is, of course, the story of Noah and the Great Flood. It is in this story that we find a very different picture of God. It seems as though only six chapters in, God's patience has worn thin. God sends a great flood to the earth and wipes everything and almost everyone out. Everything that God called very good in Genesis 1 has apparently gone so rotten that God regrets making it all in the first place. Sounds like good news, right? I promise it's there. We'll get there. But our text for today, it comes at the very end of this story. And maybe it is, spoiler alert, and it is the good news. But I invite you to stand if you are able to honor the reading of God's word. Hear the word of the Lord from Genesis chapter 9. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind in the earth. So God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life of the earth. 
This is the word of God for us, the people of God. And so together we say, thanks be to God. You can be seated. Well, of all the stories in scripture, this might be one of the most infamous. We begin telling it to our kids when they're tiny. We even sometimes paint this scene on the walls of their nursery. Cartoon lions and tigers and bears all walking up to the ark in a cute little pairs. There's a giant rainbow in the background. We tell our kids about how God, about how Noah made God very, very happy. And so God saved him and his whole family. Noah obeyed God down to the tiniest detail. So he got to go on a boat and be saved from the big flood. When you think about it, it's sort of a strange story to tell to our kids because it's actually really tragic. Sure, Noah was saved, but what about everybody else? But we've taken this story about a major natural disaster. We've kind of tamed it down, slapped a moral on it, and called it good. We focus mostly on those cute animals, and we use it to teach our kids all about obeying God. Just listen and obey, kids, and you too might find yourself on a floating zoo. Like I said a few weeks ago, it's not that these simplistic morals are altogether wrong. We want our kids to listen to God. We believe that listening and following God's way leads to abundant life for our kids, for us, for our neighbors. But these moralistic stories, they often lack nuance, and they definitely induce shame. If we never allow the stories to grow with our faith, if we never pause to look for a deeper meaning, then it becomes all too easy to use these stories as a weapon. I've heard this particular story of the flood used to make sense of natural disasters and individual tragedies. I remember when an earthquake hit the country of Haiti in 2010. There were over 100,000 people who lost their lives and even more were injured. The loss of life and property and livelihood, it's still hard to comprehend. Country is still recovering 13 years later. But I remember at that same time, there were certain religious leaders claiming that this was God's divine judgment for the people of Haiti's sins. We hear echoes of that simplistic moral taught to us when we're kids in that argument, right? You have to obey or you face divine retribution. It's easy to make those claims when we are not the ones in the center of the tragedy, when we are watching from the safety of our own privilege. I'm convinced that when we use stories in scripture to point fingers and to blame, we're missing the point. That's why when I, most weeks when I'm teaching kids downstairs, we focus less on moral lessons, less on life lessons that they can take with us into the future, and more about what each story shows us about the character of God. We want to introduce them to the person of God rather than give them neat and tidy lessons. So I think this is a helpful lens for us today, even if it might feel difficult at first. I could pull out a million different life lessons from this story about faithfulness and how to do the right thing when everyone around you isn't. And all of that's helpful and really true, and maybe I'll preach a sermon on it someday. But more than any of those things today, I want to hear what the story of the flood has to say to us about the character of God. Where is God when the world is falling apart? when destruction and chaos and death surround us? Where is God when we are in the midst of a storm that shows no sign of letting up? Does God care? Does God use tragedy 
to punish us for our sins? No, that's right. (laughs) To answer some of these questions, we need to back up a minute and trace what happened between last week's story of Cain and Abel and this week's story of Noah. So after Cain murders his brother, God sends him into exile, and he goes away from the presence of God. Um, We're given a glimpse into the legacy that Cain left for his family, and it is one of violence. The violence that began in the murder of Abel just continued and deepened in Cain's descendants. Only a few generations later, Cain's great-great-great-grandson, his name was Lamech, and he claimed that if Cain can murder one person and still receive God's grace and protection, then he could murder 70 and get even more of God's grace and protection. So by the time we get to the beginning of chapter 6, things are really, really bad. Things are dark. The text says that every single inclination of humanity's heart is evil and filled with corruption and violence. The downward spiral that began in Genesis 3 and 4, it has increased exponentially. God's dream to partner with humanity in in this creation project, it's completely lost by chapter 6. God created this world in Genesis 1, filled it with goodness, placed humans in it, gave it to them as a gift but also a responsibility. They were charged to care for and rule over this place with compassion and care. And instead of that, we see humanity doing the exact opposite. They are acting in ways that are directly contradictory to this dream of God. Rather than creating and ruling, they are actually undoing creation through violence, through seeking their own desires no matter the cost. The repercussions to this, as you can imagine, are pretty horrendous. It's not that hard for us to imagine a world that is overtaken with violence, a world that worships violence more than it worships God. It is here that we are given a rare glimpse into the heart of God. Unlike other stories, we don't have to wonder about God's motives here. We're told exactly why God does what God does. We might expect a God of rage or offense, a God to act out of rage or offense or frustration. We might expect God to be an angry judge. We might even picture God with harsh hands, narrowed eyes, steam coming out of his ears. But that's not how God's pictured. God is sad. God is in grief, heartbroken. The Hebrew word that is used here to describe the state of God's heart was used in Genesis 3 when God told Eve what the consequences for her actions would be. Pain. Deep pain. God is experiencing the pain of creation gone awry, and from that place, God is moved to do something about it. You see, it might be helpful here for us to see this in contrast to the gods that the surrounding nations, the nations that surrounded Israel, worshipped. Israel's not the only nation with a story about a great flood. There was likely some kind of flood that happened because so many different civilizations recorded their version of events what they think happened. And most of them interpreted this catastrophic event as evidence of anger and annoyance on the part of their gods. In fact, one of the most famous stories is called the Epic of Gilgamesh. And in this story, the gods' reason for flooding the earth, it was because the humanity, humans, they were too noisy. 
They were annoying the gods, and so they got fed up and sent everything to wash it away. They are causing too much trouble and being too loud. In contrast to that, the God of Israel could not be more different. God does not stand over and against this creation, but is personally involved in it. God's not this angry tyrant who watches from afar. God is not an exasperated, annoyed ruler. God is a desperately sad parent. A parent whose hopes and dreams for their kid has been dashed. God had big dreams and hopes for us, for humanity. God stuck with them through all their failures, their faults. God's presence abided with them in the Garden of Eden and followed them out, followed them into exile. And yet, here we are. This picture that we have of God is less of an abusive father, and it's more reminiscent of parents who watch their children struggle with things into adulthood, struggle with making the right decisions. Parents who maybe know the struggle of addiction. I have family who struggles with addiction, and there have been heart-wrenching days when we realize that even our steady, faithful love is not enough for our family to see their own worth. It's not enough for them to see beyond their single-minded desire. At some point, there have been moments when we've had to step back, when we've had to allow the consequences of our beloved one, had to let their consequences of their actions fall in on them in hopes that they might see the light. This is really heartbreaking work. But I've wondered if that's the posture that God has here. If God watches all that humanity is doing, God has done all that God can, and yet their hearts are the same. They long for self-destruction. Their sole focus is the undoing of creation through violence and self-service, and so God throws up God's hands and says, okay, if it is chaos that you want, and if it is the undoing of creation that you want, then you can have it. Take it. Your will be done. I cannot watch you hurt each other anymore. Let's just call it done. And so God lets loose the waters above, the waters of chaos, and gives them what they want. A total undoing of creation. But before that, God finds one faithful person. The story of Noah is actually the first story of a model of faith that we get in Scripture. The other people that we've been introduced to so far, they've been more examples of what not to do. But Noah, at least in these three chapters, things might change as you go on, but in these three chapters, Noah provides us with a model of trust and faithfulness. What makes Noah different from those around him is simply that he allows God to be God. Noah partners with God in this creation work. We even have this little detail that reminds us of Genesis 1. Noah walked with God. Noah's life was marked by loyalty to God in this way of living in creation, a way of building it up rather than tearing it down. And so in the midst of heartbreak, God remembered Noah. And God saved Noah and his family while everything and everyone else was washed away. The goal of God, it seems to be about bringing creation back 
Let's go back to Genesis 1 and 2. Things were good there. Genesis 1 opens with this scene of God's spirit hovering over the chaotic waters. Do you remember that? So we're brought back to that exact scene here in the flood story. Noah builds the ark. He goes in with his family and the animals. The rain begins to fall. The waters rise. Chaos has overrun the earth once again. And then we are told that God's spirit, which also can be translated as wind, it's hovering. It's waiting to create anew. This creation process in this, uh, in this story, it takes a little longer than six days. The waters take their time receding, and the ark finally comes to a rest. Little by little, dry land appears. Sounding familiar? Yeah, the plants come back to life. And finally, Noah and his family and the animals step out of the ark, and we're back in the Garden of Eden. We're back to this dream of Genesis 1. It is beautiful. God's plan worked. The wickedness and corruption, it's gone. The earth is new again. The humans that are left, they are faithful. It's interesting to notice, though, that God's reaction to this reality, it's not a pat on the back. It's not, yes, it worked. Job well done. We notice there might seem to be a little bit of regret on God's part. God still seems kind of sad. It's strange, but what we notice here is sort of, a 180. When Noah and his family come out of the ark, God says, I'm never doing that again. God makes them a promise, never again am I going to do that. We're used to hearing promises that include the words if or when. If you eat your dinner, you can have dessert, I promise. If you clean your room, you can go outside to play. That makes sense. Most covenants are very clear about what each party will and will not do. But this covenant has no conditions whatsoever. God says, I will never do this again. I will never participate in the destruction of creation ever again. I won't do it and I won't forget because I'm hanging up my bow, this weapon of war, I'm hanging it in the sky. It will not be used for harm. It will be a reminder of my promise, of this covenant between you and me in this entire earth for the rest of the generations. How did we get here? How did we go from a God who is so deep in grief as to send a flood to wipe everything out to this sweeping promise of nonviolence? Something has shifted. And I'll give you a hint, it's not us. Something has shifted in the mind of God. Humanity is not going to change. God seems to know enough by now that, to know that humans are as obstinate as they are generous, as selfish as they are empathetic, full of potential for great good and also evil. The stories that follow this one make it clear God asks, he says, will you be my partners in creation? And we say, yes, let's do it. Let's do it, God. But in the very next breath, we see Jacob stealing Esau's birthright, Joseph's brother selling him to the highest bidder. Aaron is gathering people around a golden calf, and David is figuring out how to conquer not only nations but other men's wives. Humanity is not going to change, at least not on a grand scale. 
so God will. God makes a covenant with creation that regardless of what happens, regardless of the evil and the violence in the world, God will not react this way again. God is going to change God's posture and try something new. God commits to being an ally, a protector, not someone you need protection from. Not only that, but God commits to being the sole one who will be responsible to uphold this promise. God will be the steady one when we cannot. The idea of God changing God's mind might come as a surprise to some of us who have been told that God is a God who never changes. Now, let me say this. God's character does not change. God's character is steady. God is a God of love. God has been committed to this thing and these people from the get-go. That has never changed. I've been preaching that to you for the last month. God's posture is one of love. But what's different here is that this commitment that God has always had, it's now been deepened by betrayal. It is marked by grief. It is clear that this commitment on God's part, this commitment will cost God. But God says here that God is willing to withstand it. God is willing to bear the cost for the sake of relationship, for the sake of love. So while God's character does not change, God's decisions do. God is moved and affected by humanity, by creation. The only way that God could be completely unmovable, unchangeable, is if God stood at a distance, completely removed from it all. But God will not do that. From the very beginning, God was in the middle of it all. And it is that involvement and that care that causes God to reevaluate. Barbara Brown Taylor puts it like this. She says, because of this covenant, God will not repay betrayal with betrayal. From now on, God will not let sorrow lead God to kill. God will bind God's self to creation in peace, even though it will hurt deeply. God will be wounded. So be it. With this first remarkable covenant, God chooses to ally God's self with creation. God, sorry, I lost my place. God chooses to ally God's self with his cantankerous creation, whatever the cost. If there is to be pain in the world, and there will be, then God will share it. Never again will God protect God's self from it by killing off those who've caused it. God's promise to them to all of creation is life, life and not death. Of course, pain and evil, they still exist in the world. That is a given. It's not eradicated, but because of this covenant, we can be assured that this one-to-one connection between guilt and punishment, it's broken. God's posture has changed. Death and destruction, violence and chaos, they are a part of our world, but we can know that these experiences are not rooted in the anger and rejection of God. The relationship and God's posture towards us, it is characterized by unqualified grace. While the world may not always be a safe place, we can know that God 
is. God has not given up on God's dream. God's stubbornness puts ours to shame. God's dream is still the same as it was in Genesis 1, to partner with us, to create a world of abundance, goodness, hope, mutual care. The dream is the same, but the onus is completely on God. Hope for this future, it's not reliant on human actualization or somehow manifesting our potential. Hope for this dream rests and depends solely on God. God resolves to stay with, to endure and sustain this world regardless of the sorry state of human, humanity. We saw earlier that the flood narrative mirrors creation in some important ways. On the seventh day in the pinnacle of creation, do you remember what God did? God rested. The creation narrative ended with Sabbath, with a rest from creation. Rest is a part of this narrative too, but it's not creating that God is resting from. It's destruction. God hangs up this weapon of war in the sky, and this rest is a final one. No matter how humanity provokes God, God will not respond in destruction and anger. God will look at this bow hanging in the sky and remember the covenant. You might notice when you look at a rainbow, if it's a bow, like a bow and arrow, you can notice which way it is pointing. It's not pointing at humanity. It is directed towards the heavens. It is though God is saying, if there's violence, let it come to me. God's role in our lives is now a co-sufferer. We are not always protected from the chaos and the destruction. We run into the consequences of our own actions and the actions of others. Even God cannot protect us from that always. But in the midst of that, we can know that we are remembered. The only thing that death and destruction and chaos, the things like violence and disunity and cancer and divorce and addiction, the only thing they cannot cut through is this commitment of God to remain with us in love, to remember us. The loyalty and the faithfulness of God is what holds us fast. God has not and will not forget you. The sign of the covenant, this rainbow, is the first move on the part of God to resist violence, to choose a different path. But this decision is, of course, culminated in the cross. God swore off violence and destruction in Genesis. And in Jesus, God goes further than that even and enters into that violence on our behalf. God says, let violence do its worst to me. And in that, I will overcome it. Finally, once and for all. We remember that very story each week at this table. We remember that Jesus, on the night he was betrayed by those he came to save, he did not attempt to protect himself. He did not lash out in violent words or actions. He offered himself completely. He broke the bread and he gave it to his friends, his betrayers. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. When you eat it, do so in affectionate remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and he blessed it. And he said, this is the cup of the new covenant. My blood poured out for you. Whenever you drink of it, do so in affectionate remembrance of me. 
It is by remembering this story that we are remembered into this family of God. We are held fast by the faithfulness of this promise of God, seen most clearly here at the cross and in this table. So in a moment, I'm going to invite you to come down. I want to tell you that this table is not my table. It's not 8th Street's table, and it's not a Nazarene table. This table is open to all who long for something, to all who want to be remembered by this God. Uh, We want no barriers, so our bread is gluten-free and our wine is non-alcoholic. When you come, we invite you to come with your hands cupped, ready to receive that which is good and that which comes from God. We do not take communion here. We receive it, which is the only way you can receive a gift. We invite you to approach one of these servers. Listen to what they have to say. Dip the bread in the cup, eat it, and be grateful. If you cannot make it down our aisle for any reason, Pastor Andrea would be happy to bring the elements to you. Just wave at her, and she'll she'll come on over. So, friends, whenever you are ready, I invite you to come. Come down to this table and receive this good news. Friends, each week we invite our congregation to respond to what they've heard by entering into a weekly spiritual practice. You can find the episode to the practice and enter into this way of Jesus in the podcast feed. May the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you wherever you go.